Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 16. Our passage, well, I mean, the whole book of Timothy, of course, is specifically directed to Timothy. But this morning especially, it's, it's very focused on Timothy, on his life, on what he's supposed to be doing, and in particular, his work as a pastor. It's most easily applied to pastors, which means that it can be somewhat hard to preach on. Because it would make more sense for me to preach it to a bunch of pastors than it would make sense for me to preach it to you in some level. But of course, as we've seen from the beginning, this book is meant to be public to the church at Ephesus where Timothy is serving. And so it's supposed to be a help to them and to us as well, not just to pastors. And so the benefit to you is mostly that you learn what a pastor is supposed to be like. And that's good for you to know. And you learn what a pastor is supposed to do and why. And so, in a sense, the questions that we are asking this morning are first, what is a good pastor? And second, what good is a pastor? (laughs) What is a good pastor? And what good is a pastor? I've had this question asked of me at various times. Um, Occasionally you have somebody who is just curious enough to ask the question that that I think more people have, which is, what exactly do you do? Pastor? And it's kind of a hard question to answer because typically the people who ask that don't have any concept of the value of the work of a pastor. And they have generally no model for what the purpose of a pastor is. They don't have any experience with a useful pastor. And so I'm sympathetic to them asking the question. Even if they've been in church or churches their whole life, which I remember specifically one guy he, here in town, he'd been in church his whole life, and he just looked at me and he asked that question, you know, well, what exactly do you do? <laughs> he was in leadership at his church. He... But really, he had no idea what the purpose of a pastor was. He could imagine with his pastor, you know, time taken up with all the meetings that are necessary at a larger church and so forth. And I guess somebody has to take care of all of that stuff, and so you may as well pay somebody to do it. But that's not what Paul has in mind here. He has a very different model, a very different picture that he gives to us. And if we don't understand in the end what the benefit is to you, the congregation, then we will never have much patience for pastors. I myself am tempted not to have much patience for pastors. So 
Let's, let's see why Paul left Timothy in Ephesus. Let's see why we have three pastoral letters in the New Testament. Let's see why God has set apart particular men to the work of the ministry. Let's stand now as we read 1 Timothy 4, verses 9 through 16. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So the beginning and the end of this passage that we read talk about salvation. Near the beginning we read that our hope is fixed on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And then at the end we read about the work of Timothy as he perseveres in this thing, ensuring salvation both for himself and for those who hear him. Now, one of the things that you learn as you study Scripture and as you study how to interpret Scripture is that generally uh, you look at a word that occurs in a passage, and if there's something confusing or you're not quite sure exactly how it's supposed to be taken, what its meaning is, you sort of spread out a little bit in the text and you look at other places that that word occurs in the text. And you don't generally want it to mean different things in different places in the text that are right near each other. Does that make sense? Because typically if somebody's using a word, they use it the same way. That's the, that's the assumption. Of course, the irony is that sometimes that's not what we do. Sometimes we use the same word and mean it different ways, and we make a point of using it in different ways in, in one conversation, right? Well, so we run into a little bit of trouble here where you've got save, Savior and salvation, and with, the, with our understanding of who God has saved being a very narrow chosen people, 
You then read in verse 10 that the living God is the Savior of all men. And you have to ask yourself, what does that mean? What does he mean? And if you were to expand and begin to look at other places where Savior and salvation, this this Greek word and its roots are used, you'd come to this later on in verse 16, and you'd see that it ensures salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. And you may think, aha, so it's talking about eternal life. So everybody's going to heaven. And of course, this is what we would like it to mean, right? This is what many people would insist it means. It's not what it means. (laughs) And the context, even of that same verse, make it clear where it goes on to say, especially of believers. So there's something unique that is being said of salvation that God provides to believers. And there's some other sense in which he is called the Savior of all men. And likewise, when you get to verse 16 and you see that salvation is ensured, the clear implication is that without this work, salvation is not ensured. And so there are those who are saved in the sense of eternal life, in the sense of going to heaven. And as you go through the rest of Scripture, we interpret confusing places in Scripture with the less confusing places, the more obvious places, the clear places. And we see that, yes, God has chosen a people for himself, called out a special chosen race, a royal priesthood of believers who will be saved on that great day whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and that there are those whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so then, you simply have to say, okay, if we know that beyond all doubt, what does it mean when it says that he is, that this living God is the Savior of all men, especially of the believers? And the answer is it's, It's not that hard. We know how God's mercy and his grace are poured out on all of mankind. We know that there are many, many men who can point to specific times in their life where they know God was merciful to them and saved their life. They simply say, I should have been dead, right? And these are not believers. These are men who will credit God with having saved them, and, but who don't call themselves Christians, who say, yeah, I'm going to hell. That day, God saved me. But they're talking about a physical salvation, right? And so we know that this word, Savior, can mean different things, and that it's not that hard, even for non-Christians to understand what is being spoken of here, that God's grace has saved mankind. You go back 
to the flood, and mankind was destroyed, but mankind was what? Saved. Safe in the ark, right? Because of God's grace. And so God has been patient. God has been kind. God has been very merciful to man. We really shouldn't be here. After the flood, mankind arose in his pride. And we've been reading about the Tower of Babel in our family devotions. And you just think, you know, why didn't the fiery judgment just come then? But God was merciful and he saved a people. And why has he been patient? So that the full number of the elect may be brought in, is what he says elsewhere. And so, especially of the believers, he is the Savior. Now, now that we have that gotcha verse out of the way, that if, if anybody's ever, if you've ever been reading, and you've been like, oh no, are the doctrines of grace totally off base? No, it, it's really not hard to understand. Now we've got that out of the way. Let's move on. The Apostle Paul is writing, and he keeps reiterating. We've seen this a couple of weeks running now. He keeps reiterating the necessity of saying these things, teaching these things, the trustworthiness of his statements the truthfulness and the importance of what he's saying. And of course, that means that he's trying to convince Timothy to believe what he's saying. Now, all of you are familiar with that feeling of talking to somebody and knowing that they know what you say is true, but that they're having a hard time believing it. Right? And so we say, believe me. Believe me. This hurts me more than it hurts you. Right? <laughs> and your kids look at you and you're like, they're like, okay, theoretically I can understand, I think maybe what you mean, but I'm just not quite sure I buy it. Right? As you're disciplining them, that, that's when parents say this. Believe me, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Believe me, Paul is, Paul is just adamant. He, he keeps saying, it's a trustworthy statement. It deserves full acceptance. Why? Well, because it's for this that we labor and strive. He is working his way towards salvation. That's why he starts with this this, this lesser salvation that God has provided for all mankind, then he says, especially of the believers. This is, this is good news for everybody. It is to be declared to everybody. And Timothy is to prescribe and teach these things. Now, we've, we've just gotten done going over what those things are that he's to prescribe and teach. He's just talked about apostasy. He's talked about the dangerous doctrines that will lead people astray. He's also talked about the the doctrines that are true prior to that, 
this common confession that Christians have about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that He came, He was revealed in the flesh, believed on, taken up in glory. And so, Timothy is supposed to be direct. Timothy is supposed to be authoritative, prescribe, and teach these things. It would be nice if we could just say this was what Timothy was supposed to do. But there's a reason that the church has always called these the pastoral epistles, because we have said that they apply to all pastors. Paul is writing so that pastors know what they're supposed to teach. Paul is writing so that pastors know how they're supposed to teach. Paul is writing so that pastors know how they're supposed to live. Now, in our previous chapter... We just went over overseers and deacons and what their lives are supposed to look like, right? And so, is a pastor an elder or is a pastor something else unique? Well, depends on uh, how you read this text and, and several others. What we do know from this is that there is something different about a pastor. Even if you say, pastors, elders, they're just bishops, they're just overseers, it's the same thing. What is clear is that there is some unique work that some of the elders are to give themselves to. And another place where we see this is that the elders who rule well are, to be wor- are, are worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at what? Preaching and teaching. And so actually in this context, it it doesn't matter whether we say that it's that pastor is something, some specific, unique, different office separate from elder. What is clear is that there is something unique about the way that they are to be operating. And it starts with the life that he's living, an example of those who believe. Timothy is to be an example of those who believe. That's central to how he prescribes and teaches these things. He's not to let anyone look down on his youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe, verse 12. And then, again, in verse 16, pay close attention to yourself. So the life of a pastor is to be a life that is a holy life. What are those things? Speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. In one sense, they're, they're no different than how anybody else is to live, right? They're no different than, than the elders. 
are supposed to live, certainly. To be an example of those who believe. But there's this, there's this thing here, don't, don't let anyone look down on your youthfulness. And that's part of where the behavior that Timothy is commanded to be engaged in comes from. His youthfulness means that there is a temptation on the part of people to be dismissive of him. Now, he is to counteract that temptation by how he lives, by being careful for himself, by paying close attention to himself, by living in this way as an example with his speech, with his conduct, in how he's loving and filled with faith, how he's pure. The whole watching world learns what a believer is to look like by looking at the public head, if you will, the pastor. And this is why the sin of pastors is particularly damaging. Because it is not the only temptation that people face to be dismissive of, to look down on the individual, Timothy, because he's young. But also there is a temptation to look down on men, to look down on the church, to look with derision and and to dismiss the work of the Church of Jesus Christ on the basis of the sin of the pastor. Now, we know that this is true. We've seen this happen over and over and over again. And there is no no, uh, kind of church that is free from... The scandal among the pastors, among the teachers, the leaders, right? You have it in the Roman Catholic Church in spades. You've got awful, awful sin. It's a scandal. So much so that here in Cincinnati, Roman Catholics in this Roman Catholic city, in the last couple of decades, have become much more open to leaving the Roman Catholic Church entirely, to simply becoming non-practicing, and also just to going to a Protestant church. Why? Well, because the priests have not showed themselves an example of those who believe. And so they have brought scandal, they've brought public scandal onto the church. They've brought public scandal onto their office. So Timothy and how he lives his life, the pastor and how he lives his life, is demonstrating not just to the church what a believer looks like. An example to the believers, you could say. (laughs) But it says an example of those who believe. And so what does that mean? 
He is to be the standout one that people look to to understand what one who believes looks like. Now, in the context, it's important that we remember that this is not just an outward thing. There's no reading through that description, faith, purity, love, and thinking that this applies only to outward actions, right? You, you can't look at this and say, it all just comes down to the things that are outward that, that people know about. And of course, this is obvious and makes sense because he's just been talking about the legalists who are willing to make it all about, you know, these external rules. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch is what he put, how he summarizes it elsewhere. In this chapter earlier, he says, you know, abstaining from marriage and, and from foods that are meant to be gratefully shared in. So this encompasses heart and action, and it ties it back directly to what we believe. It doesn't just have to do with uh, living this outward life such that people think that you're a good person, right? Now, it's funny because that's always what we're tempted to do. Even if we know our own sin, let's present to others as though we're holy. If you try to present to others as though you're holy, you will end up changing your doctrine to make it be about the rules, those external rules that you've set as the ones that people can see. You'll stop caring about purity, you'll stop caring about faith and love and make everything about speech and conduct. But this is not the doctrine that Paul is committing unto Timothy to pass down to other men. What is Timothy supposed to do? Well, if he watches carefully for himself, and if he sets an example in his outward life of all of these good things, that's going to look something particular on the part of pastors. So, so far... Most of what I've been talking about, we can all take as an exhortation to ourselves. You should seek to be yourself an example of those who believe. Not because you're the pastor. Not because everybody will look to you in your holiness or in your sinfulness the way that they look to the pastor. But because you are one of the believers, (laughs) And this is the behavior of the believer. A holy, pure, loving, faithful, pure life. Now he turns to Timothy and he begins to say, so give yourself 
to the public reading of Scripture. At a time when the Bible is available on your phone, for free, everywhere you turn around, on the internet, you can find Bibles lying around in people's homes in multiple translations. We're at a different, we're in a totally different era than when uh, Paul and Timothy, Moses. We're in a totally different era than when Paul and Timothy were around. There wasn't Bible, there weren't Bibles lying around all over the place. You didn't even have one bound book. You had individual scrolls of the books. And they were available, they were, they were expensive because they had to be made by hand, individually copying out. And this is somewhat beyond our comprehension. But it's important for us to remember. And so the public reading of the scripture was the only way that people had generally available to them to hear the word. And so with the change in availability of the word, what this means is that you have an ability that most Nobody had, back at the time that Paul is writing, to be in the Word, to be reading it on a daily basis yourself. If you didn't have that ability, how much of the Bible would you really know? How much familiarity would you know if you only got the Bible by coming Sunday morning? You really wouldn't have very much. And so at the time of the Reformation even, which was around the time that the printing press was developed, invented, and and began to go into use, you still had reading times of Scripture before the service where somebody would just be up reading so that people could get more Scripture. Also, very few people could read anyway, even if they had books available. So... As the world has changed, this has been a gift to everybody that the Bible is readily available, that you can read it. And I think that there has been a, uh, there has been a temptation since that development to be dismissive of the, the reading of Scripture, the reading. Timothy is supposed to give himself to the reading and, and One of the most obvious aspects of that is himself reading and studying it. In the Greek, it just says the reading. It doesn't say public. It doesn't say scripture. It just says give yourself to the reading. And the the context, the understanding that Paul is writing to Timothy makes clear he's talking about scripture and that he's talking about reading that happened publicly, happened so that everybody could hear. You wouldn't just give yourself to reading privately. But there's been a temptation since this explosion of availability of the Bible to do away with the public reading of Scripture. 
very few churches even have a full cha- one full chapter of Scripture read in the service, one, one full chapter of, of Scripture read to the congregation in a given week. We'll give ourselves to spending much time with one another. But is it revolving around the Word of God? And so, as I have thought about this, I've realized how important simply hearing the word read is. Today, people will say that they don't have to go to church. They don't need a church. And basically, what it comes down to is because they have a Bible. Up until the time of readily available Bibles, nobody would have, had, nobody would have felt like they had any ability to really be fed apart from going to the gathering of the believers. And of course, we're explicitly told not to forsake the gathering of the believers in Hebrews 10.25, right? And maybe as small as a single family today can gather and read the scriptures. In fact, I hope you do read the scriptures as a family on a daily basis or alone if you're not married. That's important. But it does not replace what Timothy is being told by Paul to do here, to give himself to the reading. Why? Well, because even though the, the, the clear foundation is reading and studying Scripture, the work that Timothy is to do does not stop at the reading. Whether publicly or privately reading and studying, it is not enough for Timothy to be doing that. He is to proceed from studying the word to exhortation. And so, with that, you move from, okay, maybe you could make the claim that starting with the printing press and starting with the availability of the word, now you can do the reading privately with your family. And there's no need for there to be as many gathering togethers of the whole body for the reading. But... You cannot have a pastor exhorting you if you have no pastor. Prescribe and teach these things. Exhort. Exhortation and teaching. Timothy is to exhort, and this flows from the reading. Now, opposition to exhortation is huge. 
Kids, that means nobody wants to be told what to do. Opposition to exhortation. Nobody wants to be told what to do. Even and maybe especially if they know that it's the right thing to do. Exhortation is specific. It might be public. It might be private. It might be from the pulpit. It might be in person. But it is specific. And so when I say that you should be reading the Word of God, that's a specific application of this text. It's a specific exhortation. You must be reading God's Word. It is food for your soul. But that's a safe exhortation, right? One that, yeah, we know not many people actually bring themselves to do on a regular basis, and so everybody can just feel safely, equally guilty among themselves, right? Or among each other. Even, even safer, of course, is exhorting you to pray. Because so many people fail to pray. So many feel guilty about their lack of prayer. But exhortation is specific. And exhortation connects to teaching. Remember that Paul has just gotten done attacking those who advocate abstaining from marriage and certain foods. So what we typically want to do when somebody starts exhorting us is make them out to be legalists, right? And so... um, Let me ask, is it possible to be a legalist about Bible reading and prayer. Is it possible? Yeah. It's absolutely possible, right? All kinds of people probably are legalists about Bible reading and about prayer. And look to their Bible reading and their prayer not to feed them, but to be the way that they feel good about themselves. The outward thing that they do that They feel like they're on the right path. They're able to set their day straight. It's absolutely possible to be a legalist about all kinds of things. But when I look at you and I say, you must read your Bible, you should be praying, you must pray. You should do this every day. I am not telling you to be a legalist. You see? I am telling you to do what this text says to do. I'm applying the reading of the word through exhortation, and now I'm teaching you that this is, how it, this is what it says. This is what pastors are supposed to do. That's what Tim, Paul is, being, or is instructing Timothy to do. So exhortation is specific, and it's connected to the reading, and it, and it flows out of 
teaching. They all go together, in other words. And so if I say, pre, uh, if I say, read, pray, and you say, well, I'm feeling like there's an awful lot of guilt that's coming my direction. I feel like there's an awful lot of uh, the weight of the law coming my direction and not an awful lot of grace. Where is the grace? I say, the grace is in God's word. Read it and receive it. The grace is in prayer. Pray and receive it. You see, Paul is adamant that we not become legalists, and he is adamant that there must be exhortation. Today, we're adamant that there cannot be any exhortation without it just being legalism. It's absurd. Paul makes very clear what the legalism of his day looks like. Making it into, oh, well, you know, keep yourself from marriage and you'll be doing even better. Keep yourself from these foods and you'll be doing even better. And, of course, we've already been over this with diet stuff today, twice, but I don't mind saying it again. You're not doing better by not eating sugar. You're not doing better by not eating fat. Of course, that was 10, 15 years ago. Now now I would have to say, you're not doing better by eating fat. You understand? The food is just the food. Here we have the food for your soul, what matters the spiritual discipline that is not of little benefit, but of great benefit. Here we have not the legalism that Paul was talking about, but the exhortation that is specific to to live in a particular way, to do specific things, and that is the grace of God to us. Exhortation is not exhortation unless it's telling you what to do. I exhort you to. Now I fill in the blank. It doesn't, you know, if there's nothing there, then it's not an exhortation. There's no way to complete that sentence without it being you ought to do this, or you ought to be this way, which is, of course, going to include all sorts of doing these things. And so a pastor that never exhorts has never begun to do the necessary work that flows out of reading the Word, giving himself to the reading. Does that make sense? And and this is the temptation for pastors. You read the Bible... And, and as a pastor, at least for me, there's all kinds of things flowing through your mind. Uh, people that this applies to in various ways, all the things that it means for you, about how you should change, about your life, 
all of the things that you want to say to other people, and then you also have, on the other hand, the rather uncomfortable fact that it's not wanted. Exhortation is not wanted. So if we can just let that, if we can just let that reading be abortive, you know, it's that, that plane that came in for a landing and just decided, eh, let's go to another airport. Just to fly over. It never comes in and, and has any bearing. It never, it never corrects our beliefs. It never exhorts us to action. It's just left a nice Bible reading. And sometimes you read it and you're like, well, you know, that just wasn't very nice. Can we change which book we're reading? Because Isaiah's kind of... <laughs> it twists my head around funny. If a pastor is not exhorting, the pastor has not begun to do what he's commanded to do. And that flows out of teaching, as I've said several times. Pay close attention, not just to yourself, verse 16, but what else? To your teaching. As we've seen over and over again, the Bible is clear that what we believe matters. This is why I said you will change your doctrine, you will change what you believe if you give yourself to simply living in uncorrected sin. Likewise, if you give yourself to wrong belief, you will give yourself to wrong action. They affect each other, they're so intertwined. So pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. What does this mean for you? Well, think about pastors. And pastors, always, I just got done explaining, we've got those, on the one hand, I could see and know and hear and think about what this passage means and ought to, ought to, how it ought to apply to us as a church body or whoever's listening. And on the other hand, there's the, I could just let people hear what they want. That temptation is real. How easy is it for you to join yourselves to those who teach simply what you want to hear. It's very easy. And I think the biggest danger today to Christians is joining themselves to teachers, to preachers, to sitting under that kind of reading, teaching, and exhortation that's never technically wrong. but that is removing from the spiritual diet the nourishment necessary to strengthen us in our work. 
as we saw last week. Remember, working out doesn't build muscles unless you eat right. It's this sort of thing with churches today, where there's lots and lots of food. It's a buffet of food. It's all meant to be gratefully shared in. It's even spiritually true food. They've got the Psalms. Psalm 1, the first few verses. Psalm 23, you know. They've got, they've got, uh, they've got the prophets, but not very much of it. Isaiah, lots and lots of Isaiah. But only the parts that are promising the restoration. Not the chapter after chapter after chapter of the warning and the judgment, right? And I'm, I, I'm not speaking metaphorically here, and I'm not speaking in exaggeration here. I'm speaking literally, this is what you see. And, and this is like the whole buffet just being filled with carbs, and no protein, or whatever, you know, just make it one food group. It's all dairy, and there's, there's no fruit, or it's all fruit, and there's no dairy. It, you're not going to be nourished. Timothy is to take pains with these things. Paul would not keep saying to Timothy, take pains with these things. This is true. It is worth it. You've got to teach it. Exhort, you know, he just, Paul just keeps saying, and don't you dare neglect the gift that has been given you in the middle. I haven't even mentioned it yet, right? Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. If there was any doubt that there was a temptation on the part of Timothy and on the part of pastors today to do away with exhortation and to do away with the kind of teaching that is being exhorted here by Paul to Timothy, there is no doubt after you get done reading that verse Who in their right mind would neglect the gift that was in them through ordination, through the laying on of hands of the presbytery and by the power of the Holy Spirit? This is like, uh, you know, a Marvel superhero giving up their special ability. You have to be crazy. For what purpose? So that you can be normal. What? If Paul has to tell Timothy not to do that, you know there's a temptation, right? He is to take pains with these things. He is to make sure that his progress is evident to everybody. 
that everybody sees his progress. Now, that's about as uh, opposite-sounding of all of the stuff that we were talking about the last couple of weeks where we were focusing on, you know, saying that the outward stuff doesn't matter. Marriage, lack thereof, which foods you eat, doesn't matter. And Paul's now saying, I want you to, I want you to be doing this stuff so hard that everybody can see that you're making progress in your studying, in your teaching, in your exhortation, your doctrine. That's how much confusion we have. <laughs> we, want to, we want to flip immediately from like only the, only the body matters, whether you, so just as long as you don't get married and as long as you don't eat these foods, you'll be doing like super good spiritually too. Like, oh, only the heart matters. Only the heart matters is what he's saying, right? And no, he, he just says, give yourself to living this way, it's internal and it's external, it's heart and it's body, it is inside him that he is paying attention to himself, and it's outside so that everybody else is paying attention. Embodied souls, as some are want to say. Now, what's the, what's the outcome of all of this? I think this is the most scandalous part. I've gone on long enough, but we cannot end by saying, what is the outcome? What is the fruit if Timothy does this? Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. You will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. The fruit of salvation, both for himself and for the church in Ephesus, is the reward that Paul promises to Timothy, that God promises to the pastor who gives himself to this work. Now, is that a sweet promise, or what? But, like I said, I think it is the most scandalous part of the passage. Because we don't want, number one, we don't want salvation to be limited to inside the church. The clear implication is that those who do not receive this do not receive that benefit that leads to salvation. And this is why it's so sad thinking about the way that so many churches treat the Scripture. That so many churches lack any exhortation. Right teaching is essential to our salvation. 
exhortation is essential to our salvation. Not that I, as a pastor, earn my salvation or yours. Right? You understand that's not what he's saying. But that without these things, what would happen? What would you do without exhortation? Where would you be if it weren't for the exhortation of the pastors? It's through exhortation that we turn aside from the path of the fool. It's through exhortation that we turn aside from sin. It's through exhortation that we begin to eat our vegetables. Right? And if you don't, you have no strength. You are not nourished. Without true biblical teaching, who would avoid error? Error and and thinking about life, ourselves, the world, and doctrine is our natural state. Like the first thing that happens when we start thinking about spiritual things is we come up with crazy ideas. And basically they start with, wouldn't it be nice if? In other words, we have these desires for the world to be different than it is. We have these desires for, for, it to be, for, for doctrine to be different. For what God has said to be different. And so unless we sit under faithful teaching, we'll start chasing after those things. Or we'll simply raise up pastors who will scratch our itching ears. And this is, <clears throat> this is true. The, when the scripture says that we have itching ears, it's not a compliment. It's a warning. When it says that in, last, in the last days that they will not hear faithful pastors, but they will appoint for themselves unfaithful pastors who will simply tell them what their itching ears want to hear, It's a statement not just about the faithless pastors. It's a statement about the people and about what our desires are and about how what we need to receive in terms of teaching and exhortation is different than what we want to receive. In our natural self, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us, right? I'm not trying to make this turn into everything that you want is bad. You get what I'm saying? That would be to do what the super apostles that Paul is arguing with are trying to do with marriage. And, you know, you like marriage? Oh, well, then it's bad for you. You shouldn't do it. You like that food? Well, then don't eat it. You like good teaching? Oh, well, then it's bad. You should be able to survive without it. No. But in our natural state, 
we do want our ears tickled, scratched. Without scripture-based exhortation, who would persevere? Paul is saying not just that the salvation of the church rests on Timothy being faithful in these things, but he is also saying that Timothy's salvation rests on the very same things. So the discipline that Timothy gives to the church by reading, exhorting, teaching, starts in himself. Reading, exhorting, teaching. There is no difference between the salvation of the pastor and the salvation of the people. It comes by faith and by hearing the word. What a joy that is that God has appointed pastors, those who are to declare this truth, this gospel message. Sinners, saved by grace, just like all of you. Men who know exactly what you want to hear and what you don't want to hear because they know themselves. Right? And who know that way lies the way of death. That way lies the way of me not making progress. That way lies the way of me not being nourished. That way lies the way of me being outwardly impressive through the things that I deny myself through my presentation to the world. This way lies the way of salvation.